Enlorn. And I'm Donna Grace. Welcome to the Life Rebalanced Podcast. Dr. Sean Andrews is a keynote speaker, organizational consultant, business school professor, and author of the best-selling book, The Power of Perception, Leadership, Emotional Intelligence, and the Gender Divide. She is a Forbes contributor, quoted in Chicago Tribune, and interviewed on dozens of podcasts and radio shows, including NPR. She speaks for a diverse range of clients across industries and has over two decades of corporate experience in the biopharmaceutical industry. She serves as a professor at both UC Irvine and Pepperdine Business Schools, teaching courses on women in leadership, organizational behavior, diversity in organizations, and leadership and ethics. Dr. Andrews earned her EDD in organizational leadership from Pepperdine University, an MBA from Pepperdine University, and a BA in psychology from University of California, Irvine. Dr. Andrews, thank you so much for joining us today on the Life Rebalance podcast. Thanks, Lauren. It's a pleasure to be here. We're happy to have you. And I first became familiar with your work and your book, The Power of Perception, Leadership, Emotional Intelligence, and the Gender Divide. A year and a half or so ago, a colleague of mine introduced me to you. And I read your book, and I just thought that it was fantastic and eye-opening and just such a valuable Not only did you shed light on the issue, but you also gave some practical tips and steps that we can work with and make small incremental changes in whether it be our own organization or organizations in which we work. The premise on which you wrote the book is that even though there are women in the workforce and we are represented in all areas of life, there is still a lack of women in leadership roles. And I'd love to start by finding out from you why that's a topic you chose to focus on and why it's important. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a great question to start off. So I would say about 10 years ago, uh, back in about 2010, the statistics around women in the workplace and specifically women in leadership started being published in mainstream media. And that was right about the time I started my doctoral program. And actually it was right at the beginning of my doctoral program in 2010. I was hearing about these statistics it was on the news and different media outlets. And I heard about it. I'm like, wow, there's that significant of a gender gap today, you know, in the 21st mm-hmm. century. And so I was really intrigued about the numbers, which, you know, I'm happy to share with you and your listeners yeah. today. But I was really intrigued about, you know, in this day and age, with all the skills, knowledge and competencies that women bring to the workforce and to society in general, why is it that we have such a dearth of women leaders? And so I was shocked, like many people, but I was also intrigued about what was behind it. You know, I wanted to know why. And so that actually gave me the idea to study it in my dissertation. So early on in my program, I thought, this is what I want to study. I want to look into the reasons why we don't see more women leading and explore the issues, provide strategies, all that. But, but yeah, the why is what really drove me to do my dissertation on these topics. Well, I'd love for you to share some statistics with us. And then also, why is it important to have more gender parity in leadership roles? I'll start with the most fundamental reason first. And that is for the simple fact that men and women think differently and behave differently. And that's a fact. We approach business differently. We approach life differently. We have a different focus on relationships versus hierarchy and competition. And it goes back to not only how we're socialized as boys and girls and young men and women, and we carry that into the workplace as adults, but it also 
speaks to our hardwiring. In our neuroanatomy, we have differences. And, and so in my research and in my book, I, I have a big section on actually the neuroanatomy differences, if anyone's interested. But there's lots of studies out there showing that, you know, we are wired differently too. Yeah. And I think that was one thing I took away from your book, that it is really important to acknowledge that. I think there's a tendency to not acknowledge the differences, but they do exist. And it's important to acknowledge them in overcoming the obstacles we face. Actually, from a personal standpoint, I used to be one of those people who thought, you know, men and women have some differences. You know, so we have some different approaches, but for the most part, we're pretty much the same. Mm-hmm. Human beings are the same at, the, at a fundamental level. Until I started digging into the data and I realized, whoa, was I wrong? We are different in virtually every aspect, but it's that difference that should be celebrated and valued and appreciated. And it's actually going back to your question, the why, Mm -hmm. why should we care? Why do we need more women leading for the simple fact that we do think and behave differently? That's the fundamental reason. And then other reasons to back that up is that there's tons of data that show that companies that are more, have more gender balanced leaders, even societies. If you look at societies where women are empowered, those societies flourish, Mm -hmm. those companies flourish as opposed to companies or societies run by all men. And so there's a direct link between women being empowered in leadership and companies thriving. And so there's lots of data to show that. And then the other reason is it's the right thing to do. You know, for if companies want to remain competitive and be competitive in the future, they need to not only tap their talent, all their talent, but their employee workforce should mirror society. Mm-hmm. And in many companies, the workforces don't mirror their customers that they're serving. So for all those reasons, it's imperative that we have more women in leadership roles and having decision-making positions of authority. Absolutely. And so can you give us a sense of where we stand today with women in leadership? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Women started entering the workforce in the 70s, maybe a handful in the 60s, but 60s pretty much was leave it to Bieber. Mm-hmm. Man goes off to work, woman stays home, raises the children. That pretty much was the norm across most households. 70s, you started having women's movements, more women in the workforce, but it wasn't until the 80s, actually, where large numbers of women entered the workforce. So think 9 to 5, the movie with Dolly Parton, Lily Tomlin, and Jane Fonda. Lots of hair. (laughs) Big hair, big hair days. So 9 to 5 actually portrays the women in the workforce and some of the early issues that women faced and still face today. But... It was the 80s where we saw large numbers of of women in the workforce. Basically, if you take from 1980 to where we are today, almost 40 years, the main barometer we're measuring how we're doing towards gender parity is looking, again, at leadership, looking at the number of female CEOs at our biggest companies, such as our our Fortune 500 companies. Mm -hmm. So if you look at the number of female CEOs, the average over the last 40 years is 5%. Wow. That means 95% of those companies have male CEOs. So let's put that in perspective. Mm -hmm. I went back and I did the calculations. 5% is the average. Some years we go up to six. Right now we're at 6.4. 6.4% of companies have female CEOs. And then the next year we'll drop down to 5.8. Then the next year we might go to 6.1. Then we drop down to 4.7. I've seen these fluctuations just in the last five, 10 years, Mm -hmm. but on average five. 
So right now we're at 6.4%. That equates to 32. If you do 6.4 of 500, Mm -hmm. it's 32 female CEOs, which means that there are, what, 468? Yes. 468 male CEOs. And so from that perspective, we have a long ways to go. 32 versus 468. So from a parity and leadership, we have quite a bit of work to do. Yeah. So that's the main barometer. And then just a couple other numbers for you, Lauren, is women make up about half of the workforce uh, equal to men. They make up just over half of all professional and managerial positions. And women also make up 60% of undergraduate degrees in the U.S. and also in Europe. So women are attaining education at higher rates than men. So when you look at those other statistics, you would think it would be a natural transition to leadership. And that's not what we've seen. Right, right. And the fact that that 5% number has pretty much remained steady over time is indicative of that. So in your research, what are you finding is the reason for that? What is causing this gap? Well, so what's causing this is actually the basis of my book. And on one hand, we can't, unfortunately, there's no silver bullet. And I was hoping for one. Yeah. <laughs> I was hoping, you know, I was hoping in my research and doing the, the women that I interviewed and studied, and I was hoping that I would narrow it down to, okay, maybe it's gender bias, or maybe it's, you know, lack of access to informal networks, or maybe it's breadwinner caregiver issues. Unfortunately, it was, it's none of that. It's actually a little bit of all of it. So there's no one silver bullet, but there are many different types of barriers to different extents. And most women, if not all women, if I venture to say not all women, experience the barriers to different degrees in their careers. Some men can even experience these barriers, but women to a much larger degree. And so what I did is because the barriers are so varied is I put them into four major categories or four major buckets, if you will. Okay. One big category is gender biases and stereotypes. There's a couple other examples in there too, but that is a one big area that still holds women back and impacts women's careers. Another category is lack of access to, like I mentioned, informal networks, mm-hmm. what's called structural obstacles. So many women today, and even many people of color, male and female, still don't have access to these informal networks, such as taking a client out to play golf or going to dinner or drinks, or maybe going into a sporting event, or even fantasy football leagues, you know, that are common in the workplace today. So still a lot of women either don't know about them or they're not invited into these networks. And so that's a really key barrier. And then there's also role models. Uh, We need more female role models, mentors, and sponsors. Mm -hmm. So that's Mm -hmm. one big category. You know, I'm happy to talk about any of these more, but I'm just kind of giving you the overview And then like the third category is individual mindset. So a fair amount of women hold themselves back for different reasons. Mm -hmm. And then the fourth category is work-life balance issues. Right. And so there's barriers within each of these major categories. And then we have gender culture differences as well that I explored. Yeah. We could talk about all of them and we'd have a four hour long (laughs) podcast. But what I found most interesting in reading your book was the concept of unconscious gender bias. And I think that that's probably, I would say, of the ones you mentioned, it seems to me the most difficult to manage and overcome. So can you tell us a little bit about what you mean when you talk about unconscious gender bias and, and what that looks like and what we can do about it? Yeah. 
So bias in general is, gender bias in this case, is one of the most pervasive barriers. And the reason for that is it's institutionalized. So basically, it's within our systems, it's within our cultures, and it gets passed down from generation to generation. You know, our beliefs and values, things we get taught by our parents and our political affiliation and our religion Mm -hmm. and These biases are systemic, and again, they're in our systems, they're institutionalized. And so for that reason, it is very hard to address them. But the good news is there are things we can do from an individual and organizational standpoint to address them. Some of the other barriers, like the individual mindsets I mentioned, Mm -hmm. that's a little easier to affect because that's women who are in charge of their own thinking and and behavior. So we could affect that a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. The work-life balance category is a little tougher. On one hand, we could have conversations about breadwinner caregiver with our partners or spouses. But on the other hand, we also need our companies to offer programs and policies that are consistent with work-life integration or balance. Yes. So again, there's different extents. Some barriers are easier to address than others. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the bias one certainly is a, a big piece. Absolutely. And I have a personal interest in the work-life balance one too, because it's something Donna and I talk about a lot. And we really talk about, in our particular cases, we view it as more as integration rather than balance. I I have this thing about talking about it as balance. I realize it's a common phrase we use, but when we're thinking about it as balance, in my mind, it's these two completely separate worlds that we're trying to manage independent of one another. And I think that that's where we're actually going wrong. And the second thought I have on that, and I'd love to hear your views on this, is I really don't think we're going to make forward progress on the work-life balance conversation until we're also speaking to men about it. Because I think it's something that is directed so heavily toward women. And I think that men need to be brought into it in terms of a small example might be encouraging men to take a leave when they have a baby or those types of things so that it is equal access to these things for men and women and sharing that burden of the life portion of the work-life balance, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I talk about the balance versus integration. And actually, in my book, that's one of the topics that I start off with in one of my chapters. Mm-hmm. The reason for that is the simple fact that when you think of balance, balance would imply 50-50. Mm-hmm. So 50% energy to, at our work, 50% energy at our on our home life, for our personal life. Life doesn't work that way. Life is messier than that. Mm-hmm. So we really, and, and this is not just for women. It's anybody, if you're trying to manage a family successfully, if you're trying to manage a career successfully, plus you have your health, you have your relationships, you have vacations you want to take, you have personal interests, trying to balance all that evenly is nearly impossible for any anybody, mm-hmm. even if we're a super achiever. And so, yes, work-life integration is actually a much better term because it's not about balance. It's really about how do we successfully integrate these different pieces in our lives and to different extents. And there's give and take, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes we're, we're going to focus more on family. Other times it's going to be more on career. Mm-hmm. Other times, okay, now I'm focusing more on my health or my maybe my in-laws. Mm-hmm. There's so many different situations. And so it's just about finding better ways to integrate these different aspects into our lives. And so the more that companies can help with that, that is more successful than trying to achieve just balance. 
And do you think that coming out of this pandemic, there might be more opportunity for that in seeing how working from home and and shifting the way we think about work might influence how things go? Okay, so that is such a timely and relevant question, Lauren, because actually the data is showing just the opposite for women. Yes, so, so on one hand, most individuals are working from home. You know, some have returned to the office, but majority is still working from home across all industries. So from the perspective of working from home and being able to manage your family with your job, yes, there's one argument that could be made it is better and easier for women. But what the data is showing, and this is based on McKinsey and Lean In do a report every year of women in the workplace, and the 2020 report just came out last month. Hmm. What the data shows is that one in four women are considering downshifting their careers or leaving the workforce because of COVID. And so what's happened is actually this goes back to the barriers we're talking about. What's happened is, so if, if a woman is trying to succeed at her career full-time. She's now on Zoom calls all day, right? But the lion's share of the caregiving still falls on women. And so she is at home, but she's on these Zoom calls. She's actually managing her children. She's homeschooling her children, doing most of that is falling on women and the household duties. So who does this? Who's going to do the shopping? Who's going to do the laundry? Who's going to do the dishes? Who's going to do the house cleaning? So the caregiving and the household duties are falling mostly on women, even in this COVID environment. So because of the pressures, one in four women are considering leaving the workforce. So this is millions of women, millions. Mm -hmm. This has huge implications for the future of women in work. If they don't realize this and tap in and find ways to help women integrate all of this in their lives, again, going back to the work-life integration, they are going to lose talent, female talent. They're going to lose their female leaders. They're going to lose future female leaders, millions of women. And so this is a significant issue. And I think corporate America is really at a crossroads right now because we're on the verge of, we don't see any end in sight with returning back to work. So this virtual environment, at least for now, is here to stay. Right. So women are struggling to manage their career. And if they have small children and the homeschooling plus the household, and that balance has to change at home because we're going to lose women and women are going to get burned out eventually. You can't sustain this long-term. Men have to step up with the caregiving and the household duties. And both are trying to manage their careers, but we have to have men as well. We have to have more parity at home in order to have more parity in the workplace. Absolutely. And I think this is where that systemic bias kind of flows in. And what you're saying as you're talking about it, I'm thinking about the people I know in these dual income households with small children. And exactly what you're saying is I've seen probably one in four is a really good rough number of people where the husband's job sometimes takes priority over the wife's job. And a lot of that work, the schooling and all that has fallen to women. So not that we can solve this problem right now, but why are we not seeing more men pitch in and take on their share of the workload at home? And how do we start to shift and change this? Because it would really be a huge loss, I think, to see women drop out of the workforce because of all of this. Yeah. 
Well, I think it starts with having candid conversations with your spouse Mm -hmm. and your partner about your workload, your stress, and most importantly, what are your needs? Communicate with your spouse or your partner about what you need right now. If you need your partner spouse to step up with a household Mm -hmm. or caregiving, tell them that. Share your needs right now because it's critically important. It starts there. And then the second step would be also share your needs with your employer. You know, let them know you're struggling. We can't ignore our families. And employers get that. A smart employers understand the value of that. And so employers can work with employees about, mm-hmm. you know, helping them work through that. You know, what's it going to take for you? And it's different for different women. You know, some women may just need to be on less Zoom calls. Other women may say, I need this project taken off my plate. It's going to vary for women. You know, another woman may say for her, it's working a half a day on Fridays. So she could, or Monday, so she could focus getting her children going with the homeschooling. So whatever it is for you, having that conversation first with your spouse and secondly with your employer is going to help. There is also positive data with millennial men that we do know millennial men help out more with the household duties than older generations, but that hasn't translated to caregiving duties. So even millennial women still have the lion's share of caregiving, even if you have a dual income household. That is very interesting. I don't think that I've focused very much on that statistic. So it's specifically the responsibilities of taking care of the younger people in the family, or even maybe it's aging parents too, but the caregiving falls more to the women. That's right. And there's actually even data that shows more women take care of not only their own parents, but their in-laws, aging parents. So women absolutely are doing the lion's share of the caregiving, whether it's elders or children. That is ubiquitous. That has not changed. And even for younger or youngest generations. And so it has to start with having these conversations about what we need, because some of it is gender bias, you know, even within our own families, you know, women or men, have their own biases that we carry as well. So don't just assume that because you're the woman, you're going to be the one to take a step down in your career. Mm -hmm. Don't assume that. You need to have that conversation with your spouse or your husband because there's all kinds of creative solutions I've seen couples do to work through this. You know, it may be your, your husband takes a step back in his career for a while until the children get a little older. Yeah. And then you switch. And then, you know, you take on another role and then, you know, he focuses on his career. So whatever it's going to take for you as a couple, that is a really important conversation that you must have. Absolutely. Be aware of biases that we carry into this too, because don't assume that you're the female, you're going to be doing the caregiving and he's going to get to focus on his career mostly and not, not do the household and the caregiving. Yes. Check those assumptions as well. That's the main thing is we shouldn't be operating from this default assumption. We need to have the conversations. And I will say my co-host Donna isn't with us today, but she is the breadwinner in her family. And her husband chose to take a step back in his career and stay at home while their children are still young. And so I think that people are having these conversations and it really is highly individualized. Something that's going to work for one couple isn't going to work for another. And so to just be willing to have the dialogue and the difficult conversation about what it is you need and what will work for you, I think is a great starting point. Absolutely. And from there, we've focused a lot on how COVID has affected things and the specific issues that come up with that. But back to a focus on helping women enter into these leadership roles, what would you say are some other 
either obstacles or solutions that we can start thinking about and implementing? Yeah. Okay. I've given more talks in the last three months than I have all year on this topic, on the power of perception, leadership, emotional intelligence, and gender. I have a talk on overcoming hidden biases, which is incredibly relevant right now. Uh, Another one on driving DNI, how to create inclusive cultures in our workplaces, another highly relevant topic. Mm -hmm. And then I created a recent one on how to leverage emotional intelligence during crisis or COVID. Mm -hmm. So all four of those are so relevant right now. So to answer your question, Lauren, so when I give the power of perception talk, I speak to men and women, but when I get to the point where I'm speaking just to women, Mm -hmm. I have a a couple slides on general advice and wisdom Mm -hmm. for women. Mm -hmm. I'll share with you my favorite one. Yes. It has to do with taking risks and trying new things and putting yourself out there because that builds confidence, which gives us other opportunities. So Mm -hmm. I'll give you an example. When men are approached with a project they've never done. So let's say their boss comes to them and says, hey, John. Have this new project for you. And, you know, what do you think? So let's say John has no experience at all. He's never done this, this type of project. But most men will, would respond, boss, I got it. I'm on it. So what does John do? John goes and figures it out. He does this by talking to his colleagues, looking up the data, reading books, whatever he needs to do to get up to speed to figure out how to do this new project, right? Mm-hmm. That's generally how men respond. Okay, let's take the same scenario for women. Let's say, Lauren, let's, let's, can I use yeah, you as an example? Absolutely. Okay, so let's say your boss comes to you and says, Lauren, I have a new project for you. Can you do it? The way most women respond to that question is most women say, I've never done that. I don't have experience in it. So women are transparent. You know, they want to be honest. They say, you know, I'm not sure. Maybe we can bring in a consultant. Maybe tap into another department, but I'm just not sure. Okay. Now, if you're a boss and you're busy, crazy, and you have things on your plate, you just want it done, which one sounds more confident? Well, the one who's just going to figure it out and get it taken care of. Okay. So the male, right? If you're the boss, Mm -hmm. you're busy, you just want it taken care of. The male sounds more competent in this situation. Mm -hmm. Okay. Here's the kicker. John does not know any more than you do, Lauren. Right. He just acts as if he does. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, I want your listeners to think about this for a minute. This has worked for men for decades. Men don't know anything more than women do, but they act as if they do. And they go figure it out. Women, because of our gender culture, because we want to be honest and transparent, there's nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. But we generally respond, oh, you know, I don't know. I'm not sure. I've never done it. I could try it. But which one are you going to put your confidence and confidence in is likely the male. Right. So for the women listening to this, run a little experiment in your own life. Mm -hmm. The next time you're approached by something you've never done, say, boss, I got it. I'm on it. And you go figure it out, just like your male colleagues. Mm -hmm. So you have confidence in your ability to figure things out. Yes. I tell you, it works. This works. Men don't know anything more than women do. They just act as if they do. The world needs more women to say yes. Mm -hmm. Because if you say yes to that project, okay, what's going to happen? Best case scenario, you knock it out of the park, you're successful, right? Okay, let's look at the worst case scenario. Let's say you stumble a little bit. Maybe it's not so good. Maybe you even fail at it. What are you going to get out of that? You're learning. 
you're gaining experience. You got it. Mm -hmm. So even the worst case scenario, you're going to gain experience and you're going to gain confidence the next time you're approached with that project because, hey, I've done this before. Absolutely. You now have that experience. So this feeds on itself. If women say yes more often, they get more opportunities, first of all, just like their male colleagues, but they're getting more experience. Third, they're getting more confidence. It's a positive reinforcement cycle. And I see this in the classroom all the time, too. I do this little experiment in the classroom, and it's echoed every single time. Women tend to respond. Don't know. Women, Men tend to respond. I got it. And they go figure it out. So have confidence in your ability to figure things out because you can do this, and it will make a difference in your career. So, Dr. Andrews, what does all of this mean, and what are the implications for our future? Yeah, that's the golden question. The $10,000 or $100,000 question. The reason, so I mentioned earlier, you know, why we don't see more women leading and why it's important. But if you boil it all down, the reason we don't see more women leading has nothing to do with women's skills, competencies, or knowledge. It has everything to do with our perceptions of women as leaders, as workers, as mothers, and as wives. These perceptions are incredibly powerful for a career. And for many women, perceptions are reality. I mean, really, when you boil it all down, it it has to do with our perceptions of women, how we view women as leaders, how we view women as mothers, and how we view women even as workers. And so as a global society, women's vision, women's values, women's strengths, and even their contributions are simply not valued as much as men's Mm -hmm. on a global scale. I mean, again, boil it all down. It comes down to that. And so we have to change how we perceive women, and we have to also change how we value women. And most people don't think about it at that level, because I've, I've actually said that before in some talks, and I've had, I've had men say, well, that's not true. I value women. But when you boil it down to policies, to laws, to our societal norms and our cultures, The message that women are receiving globally is that you are not valued. So it really comes down to how we value women. And that absolutely, I think one, we need to be aware of it. Mm -hmm. We need to educate and we need to be talking about these issues in order to bring more awareness to that value. That's one thing to really keep in mind. But the bottom line is that we need both men and women contributing to the leadership gender gap. And we need both men and women working together to close the gap and tackle the many barriers that you know we discussed earlier. So this is not just a women's problem. It actually, this is a world problem. There's actually a direct link. If you look at poverty in countries that have the worst problems with poverty, there's a direct link to women being disempowered. Mm-hmm. If you look at societies that are succeeding, there's a direct link to women being empowered in those societies. So We need men and women working together because our companies will be better and our societies will be better as well. And it will benefit not just women, of course, but it's going to benefit men as well. So it's truly a global issue. I absolutely agree. And shedding light on that and putting it in that perspective, I think, is so important. So thank you for sharing that, Dr. Andrews. Sure. And then just one final comment, Lauren. Yeah. This sounds like a lot to tackle, right? It sounds like a huge, big, hairy you know, goal. Like how are we ever going to get there? Mm-hmm. Here's the cool part. There's something called the rule of three 
or the 30% rule. And there's pretty robust data behind this. And what it shows is that when you have three of something, three in a group, so let's say three women, three Black employees, three Asian, three LGBTQ, whatever it is, when you have three of something in a dominant workforce that's different, the power dynamic starts to shift and conversations change. We don't actually need Mm 50-50 in order to succeed at this, in order to value women and move the needle. Mm -hmm. Because what the rule of three shows is that, or the 30% rule, is we can actually start tipping the scales when you have 30% in a room or at the table. So one person, so if you have one, let's say African-American and you have all white, okay, or one woman with all men, it's referred to as tokenism. Mm-hmm. You know, they're the token, whatever. When you have two people, mm. it actually is interesting because it could be good, they could collaborate, or they could be viewed as arch enemies. Competitive. Uh-huh. Yes, competitive. It mm-hmm. works again, actually could work against the group. Mm-hmm. But when you have three now, the power dynamic shifts and those three start to feel empowered and that their voice matters more. So that's the cool part is you don't need a majority to reach critical mass and start seeing a change. That's why it's so important to have these conversations about we need women, we need people of color represented in leadership to start moving that needle and not just leadership, but actually all levels Mm -hmm. and to start transforming the world. Yes. That's how we get there. Getting to that critical mass is so important. Dr. Andrews, thank you for sharing that. And before you go, Donna and I have a few questions that we like to ask all of our guests just to get to know you a little bit better and share with our audience how you handle some things. We touched earlier on how life isn't 50-50. You're not devoting equal allocations of time to any given thing that you have on your plate. So what is it right now for you that is taking up most of your focus and attention in life? Well, it could be personal, professional. What's demanding the most of you right now? Well, actually, this ties into a comment I made earlier. So I mentioned I've given more talks in the last three months than I have all year. My main focus lately, I've revamped all four of those talks. So I've updated them with the latest statistics, stories, examples, reformatted my slides. Mm-hmm. I've been focusing on that actually for the last couple months. And I'm at the point just now where I feel good about all four. And I'm getting very positive feedback about all four of those presentations. There's one piece of feedback I just got this morning that I'd love to share with you if you don't mind. Absolutely. Please do. So I gave a talk last week for GlaxoSmithKline, a pharmaceutical company, Mm -hmm. and they were having their global development week. So hundreds, hundreds of women and men actually across Glaxo globally listened in to these talks. Well, I just, I was one of the many speakers. Mm -hmm. So they have speakers all over the regions and all different countries. And then their, their main stage keynotes was Condoleezza Rice and Amy Cuddy, who does power posing. Yes. Uh Uh-huh. And then they had a couple others too, but those were the two you know, big names. And I gave my power of perception talk to one of the regions. And the feedback I got this morning from one of the Glaxo women initiative leaders was she said out of all the presentations, she felt that mine had the most practical, relevant, the most concrete strategies of all the speakers she heard. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that like made my day because that says a lot. You know, Condoleezza Rice and, you know, Amy Cuddy. I was really happy with that because I just revised that presentation. It's taken a lot of my focus lately, but it's, it's been. Yeah. That has to feel great, A, to get that 
done. And then also to get such great feedback on it. And I will say, having read your book, I would concur with your audience member who shared that with you. I really, really do appreciate the practical application that comes with that. So thinking about how this has taken up a a good majority of your time, is there any area of your life where you maybe have had to let some things go or given yourself grace to be able to shift your focus in that direction? Uh, Yeah, yeah, I have to say, during this whole COVID thing, I was thinking, okay, we're we're all working from home now, right? I'm not hopping on a plane and going and making talks in person anymore. I'm I'm doing virtual. So I thought, okay, I'm going to have more time to work out and exercise and ride my bike. (laughs) And it's gone just the opposite during this. And I think I've gained weight. I haven't done the exercise, Mm -hmm. you know, so I've been focusing on my, my business so much, especially in the last few months that part of my life has been neglected. And so I do need to, I don't think I've given myself grace yet, but I do need to do that and allow myself time to get out there. So Melinda Gates came out with a book last year, The Moment of Lift. Yes. It's similar to my book in that it's about women's empowerment. And I was listening to the audiobook, and she said something that struck me this morning. And it was that put time in your schedule for things that are important to you. Because if you don't, other people will put time on your schedule for things that are important to them. That's actually how I felt during this whole COVID thing. It's because I felt like my time has not been my own. I just don't have time to do the things I want to do because I have all these meetings and appointments. And and I really thought about that. I thought, you know what? I need to put time on my calendar to go exercise and ride my bike or Absolutely. And sometimes it's so easy to, even if you have those on your calendar, to shove them off to the side when something more pressing comes your way. And Dawn and I have talked about this in previous podcasts too, about allocating that time for yourself. And even when you're calendaring out your year, putting vacation down first or putting really important family activities down first so that the other things don't encroach upon that. But I think really sticking to your schedule when you schedule something for yourself is critical too. Yeah. And to not move it for other things. You need to value your own time as much as other people's demands on your time. Absolutely. Well, and the last question I have for you is in this season of growth that you've had, are there any tips or strategies or techniques you've used that you could share with our listeners that have helped you navigate through it or made you more successful with your tasks? Yeah, I mean, one thing is, getting organized. And that's always been important to me, but I've always had like piles on my desk that I just never get to. And it drives me crazy because I never get to them. You know, they're there for a year or two years. And it's, it's like my to read pile or my to reference pile. And I just never clear it out. And it it drives me crazy. And so I've actually dedicated some time during COVID too, to organize myself, not only physically, but digitally, you know, I've gone through all my computer files. I've thrown out old stuff. I've reorganized my folders that make more sense and put things in those. And there's lots of people who are in the space of personal organizing. They always say that if you clear out your clutter, it clears out your mind. Mm -hmm. And it really does. And so if you come into your desk in the morning and your paper's all over and it's kind of cluttered, you feel, you actually feel stressed. But if you come into your desk in the morning and you have a clean desk with one tidy pile of news, Mm -hmm. it's actually, I found it to be pretty empowering to take the time to get organized because it does help you be more efficient. 
such an important tip. And thank you for sharing that. I think something you mentioned too that I want to highlight is not only is it your physical clutter, but we think the digital clutter doesn't weigh us down. But I I mean, I'm sure you've experienced that even clearing out the digital clutter clears your mind as well too. Yeah, well, like your inbox. Right. Going through and cleaning that up does help quite a bit. Yeah, great advice. Thank you so much for having this conversation. I feel like we barely scratched the surface and we could, <laughs> we could probably do a few more episodes on this, but I really appreciate you sharing all of this. If listeners want to follow what you're doing, get a copy of your book, mm-hmm. get some of your resources you have available, where can they find you? Yeah, yeah. The best way to find me is my website, drshawnandrews.com. And that's the DR, no period, just DR, Sean, S-H-A-W-N, andrews.com. I'm actually in the process of revamping that as well. So there'll be a new look, new feel, and new resources coming soon. I have a contact page where you can reach me through that. Also, I'd be more than happy to connect with your listeners on social media. I'm mostly on LinkedIn. LinkedIn and Twitter is probably the biggest. And then the book, by the way, it came out in 2018, but I did an audiobook version of it last year. And I did provide updated statistics throughout the book on the audiobook version. So if, if one of your listeners is into audiobooks, it was narrated by yours truly. I actually went into the music studio oh. and it took me three months oh, wow. in a studio to actually lay down the, the narration and uh-huh. get everything that needed to be done to get it onto Audible and Amazon. Great. Any format. I personally am a fan of audiobooks. I like to multitask. So I will listen <laughs> while driving or exercising or anyone, a number of yeah. things. And we'll share all that information in our show notes as well. So you can have easy access to it. If you would like to find out and hear more from us on Life Rebalanced, you can follow us on Instagram at life underscore rebalanced. Thanks for listening. And as always, be well. <laughs>